Well, one of the great cultural divides today in our country is the resentment that many have toward those they view as the cultural elite. Now, who are these elite? Well, at least in the popular imagination, they are the well-educated, highly compensated, cold-brewed-drinking yoga class enthusiasts who live in New York City, Los Angeles, Boston, or LA, or San Francisco. They work at investment banks and ad agencies and consulting firms, at law firms, or in Hollywood, where they go home to their $1.5 million apartments, where they listen to NPR, drink organic milk, eat orga uh, drink almond milk, eat organic food, and read The New Yorker and sip espresso made from $700 espresso machines. And then when they go out to walk, they walk with their designer dogs wearing Lululemon leggings and Birkenstocks and vests because, of course, their arms never get cold. And then there are the non-elites, those living in the flyover country, who eat barbecue, drink Mountain Dew, drive a pickup truck, watch NASCAR, while working as firefighters, teachers, nurses, carpenters, and will tell anyone who will listen just how the elites don't get them. Now, in recent years, resentment's been growing between those who see themselves as outsiders and those who see themselves as insiders. Now, I'm not going to about to wade into this contemporary minefield, but the reason I mention this divide is because we might imagine that we're the first time in history where there's ever been that kind of divide. But the truth is, they have always existed. The divides between rich and poor, haves and have-nots, between those with power and the powerless. And the world Jesus was born into was no different. At the top of the first century food chain were the Romans. They ruled most of the known world, at least the parts that mattered. They gave some level of local autonomy, but everyone knew who ultimately was in charge. Now, in Palestine, local authority had been given to a man named Herod. He was a vain, power-hungry despot, and his family was thoroughly corrupt and had an alliance with the Romans that allowed them to share power with the Roman governor. The average person hated Herod as much or more than they hated the Romans, and they hated the Romans a lot. And then there were the religious elite. These included members of a group called the Sanhedrin, a powerful political body that had religious but also some political authority in the nation. In addition, within the Sanhedrin, there were two religious parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were in conflict with one another but at the same time united by their desire to control the affairs of the nation and to exclude the masses from having a say in much of anything. So the Romans, the Herods, the religious leaders, together they made up a group that the average citizens in the nation of Israel resented. And sure, some aspired that one day they might be able to join the elite, but the, frankly, the fact is, is that there was little social mobility in the day, so few, if any, had the hope of ever changing places and changing their everyday reality. Now, if you think about the elite, um, do you want to venture a guess about who was at the bottom of the first century food chain? the group furthest from that cultural elite? Well, you probably couldn't do better than the shepherds. What's confusing is that the Jews had a romantic idea of shepherds. King David had been a shepherd. They compared the task of a king to a good shepherd in the prophets. They described the coming Messiah as a shepherd, and even Jesus, during his lifetime here on earth, would describe himself as the good shepherd. And yet, real-life shepherds were held in contempt they were considered social misfits and thieves. Socially, they were right there, right below used car salesmen and congressmen. To say they were not highly regarded is an understatement. They smelled. The intellectual requirements for the job weren't high. They were regarded as dishonest and unreliable. And in a nation that valued religious purity, living in the fields meant they couldn't keep the most basic of religious rules. 
And to add insult to injury, the life of a shepherd was extraordinarily difficult, at times even dangerous. The flocks were enormous. This is thousands of animals requiring constant attention. They lived out in the open air from early April to mid-November. They endured hot days and freezing nights. And by the way, sheep are pretty stupid, so they wander off. They get sick, and the random spook sheep could lead off a hundred or more of the sheep to run off for no good reason. And then the shepherds had to sleep lightly at night because there were hyenas and jackals and wolves or even bears lurking in the shadows. It was difficult work, lousy pay. There was no respect for a job that was basically boring and tedious. So why did they do it? And the answer is because in most cases, they had no other options. All of that brings us to a story about the night when Jesus was born. And it's a story you heard read in the video just a moment ago. Uh, and the part of the story that I want to focus on is immediately after the birth of Jesus. And it involves a ragtag bag, a band of shepherds, and one of the most unusual celebrations of a human birth in history. Those of you who have children certainly remember the day of the birth of your children, perhaps in great detail. Um, you may remember how excited you were then to let everyone that you know know about the birth of your child. Today, most people simply open up their phones, um, go to Instagram or Facebook and let everyone know. But in the days when our daughters were born, we didn't have that sort of thing, and so we went old school. We had to make phone calls. Now, our oldest daughter was born when we were living in Switzerland, and she arrived, I remember, a few minutes before uh, 7, 7 p.m. Uh, after the doctor had checked her out and the nurses had cleaned her up, we enjoyed some time with her, a couple of hours. And uh, then my wife just said, you know, you got to get home. you got to make phone calls. We didn't even have cell, we didn't have cell phones. We couldn't even make a call from the hospital. I had to drive home. And then we called our parents. Now, fortunately for us, because of the time zone difference, that meant it was the middle of the afternoon. So I called, I think, first Kathy's parents and then my parents, and we let them know the exciting news. And it was a great time. We wanted everyone to know. And that brings us back to this story to one of the most unusual birth celebrations ever. On one hand, it was probably the most dramatic, but on the other hand, the audience was extremely small and oddly chosen. Now, you've heard the story already, but let me just try to describe it, because it sounds like something out of a Spielberg movie. There's an angel who comes bringing incredible news. Like almost every other angel encounter in the Bible, the people who see the angel are terrified. The shepherds are frightened. Then the angel tells them that just a few miles away, the promised Messiah has been born. And before they can digest all of this, the sky is full of angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So you can't imagine a more dramatic celebration than a sky full of angels and a laser light show. But when you look more closely at the story, for this, this audience, for this Super Bowl halftime worthy show, what you see is a handful of low-class peasants. And it makes you scratch your head. You want to say, God, why did you send the most best extravagant celebration in history and not drum up a few more people? And especially, why wouldn't you make sure that in the audience there weren't at least a few VIPs? If God was trying to impress everyone with his might and power, why didn't he send the angels to a crowded marketplace in Jerusalem instead of a Judean hillside in the middle of the night? If he were looking, looking to create a little buzz, why didn't he try to hook in a few trend centers and influencers and opinion leaders so the news would maximize his marketing budget? Plus, didn't he know that shepherds weren't the most winsome of spokespersons? 
that it was unlikely that these guys would convince anyone that they were telling the truth. In a nation full of people who outdid themselves to appear more righteous than everyone else, didn't he know that these guys had zero credibility? If he were trying to make a splash and speak truth to power, why didn't he arrange for an audience with some of the elites of the day? Couldn't he have divided that angel choir up into little ensembles and have one go to Caesar and another to Herod and then a third to the Sanhedrin or any number of other religious groups and political folks in the first century world? Surely that would have had more impact than wasting this display of angelic force on a few smelly shepherds on a, on a, a hillside outside Bethlehem. After all, according to the Christian tradition, the unfolding events of that night were the most significant in human history. The night when God's promise to his people was fulfilled, when out of the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David became the king, the Messiah. You would think that when this story broke, the news would be rolled out with great fanfare. It would be leaked to a prominent journalist. Public officials would be briefed. There'd be a major press conference. It would be trending news on Twitter. There'd be TV trucks and helicopters hovering over the site. But that wasn't the way that it was. In fact, despite the celebration and the significance of the news, there wasn't really a public celebration at all. Sure, there were the angels, but that was to a small private group of people. Now, up in heaven, things were completely different. In fact, one way to look at this story is to say that what the shepherds got was just a peeling back of the curtain and being able to see the celebration that was going on in heaven because it was pretty impressive. Now, one way to look at this is that the reason the shepherds were the only ones on earth who saw this is because even if Caesar, Herod, and the others had been invited, they wouldn't have come. On principle, maybe they were even opposed to the idea. But it was a big deal in heaven, and eventually it has turned out to be a big deal to millions upon millions through the centuries. In the end, it serves as a reminder that it's often what's most important in heaven that is the least important here on earth, and what is unimportant here on earth is the most important in heaven. So instead of trying to get the news on all the networks, going viral on the web, to get the news in front of millions of eyeballs, God chose the opposite approach and announced the news of the birth of Jesus by sending his messengers to a group of not quite ready for prime time smelly shepherds. So why this irony? Why in this counterintuitive way does God want to communicate the good news to folks who would normally be on the outside? Well, I think there's some powerful symbolism because there's something significant about shepherds appearing in the Jesus story at all. By including them, I believe Luke is trying to remind us, to tell us, that the kingdom of God isn't just for those who are already on the inside, that it's for those on the outside, people like the shepherds and people like us. He's reminding us that the kingdom of God is not made up of the elite, but of ordinary normal people who may have no business being in the same room as the wealthy, the well-connected, and the well-known, who are usually present at important events like this. Our world is no different from theirs. The privileges went to the rich and the famous. So if an angel had visited Caesar or Herod or the Sanhedrin, it would have made more sense. But instead, the Christ child shows up not just for the well-connected and the well-resourced, but for everyone. So when the angel visited this ragtag group of ritually impure shepherds and gave them this important message, everything changed and they began to understand that God didn't care what you wore or where you worked as long as you were willing to listen and believe. That the question of who was holy and pure needed to be asked in entirely different ways. 
And when the angel said, unto you a Savior is born, they knew that the one God was sent for everyone, not just the elite. And that's where I think the story connects with us. Sometimes we feel like outsiders. Some people just fit in this world. They have career success and terrific families and financial prosperities. They seem to have it all. And then there are even those who seem to have it all spiritually. They know lots of religious trivia. They seem such good people while we struggle to live out the basics of following Jesus. And so the story of the shepherds remind us that Jesus came for everyone. That the good news, the birth of, of the birth of Jesus, came to some working class guys that people looked down on, shows us that he came for us as well. So how then did the shepherds respond to this news? Well, Luke tells us that they went to Bethlehem to see for themselves. Now, the way I envision it is these are some pretty practical guys. Even though they're understandably impressed with what they've just seen, they also think, you know what, we better check this out for ourselves. So in some ways, Luke is telling us they're neither gullible nor skeptical. But open, with open minds, they hurried off, and sure enough, we're told that they found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in the manger, just as the angel had said. And when they saw, they believed. It makes you wonder what would have happened if God had sent the angel to any of the, the elite of that day. And my guess is that they would have dismissed the news outright. They were too jaded to listen to the words of an angel, too sophisticated to be impressed with that late-night music and light show, too enlightened to believe anything that smacked of the supernatural. And even if they realized it was all real, they would have been too protective of their power to give this even a moment's thought. But the shepherds listened and they believed. And by believing, they proved God's wisdom in entrusting the announcement of the birth of Jesus to them. And that's what happens next because Luke tells us that when they saw, they spread the news. You see, they couldn't keep this news to themselves. They wanted everyone to know. And by the way, that's something that we too can do. If you've ever experienced something of God's presence in your lives, and I would imagine it's not included an angel, but any experience of God, it's something that you can share with others. So it says that the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen. So in short, they worshiped, but they also returned, and I think that returning is important. They didn't spend the rest of their lives hanging around that stable. Instead, they returned to their jobs, to their homes, and to their families. Now, they weren't the same people because they'd been changed by this encounter with the angels and changed by seeing Jesus. But they were new people going back to an old situation. That means that an encounter with Jesus doesn't mean that you'll quit your job and apply for one here at City Church. Instead, it most likely means that you will seek ways to live out your faith in the places that God has already placed you and with the people who are already in your life. I think it's hard for us to grasp how radical the story of Christmas really is because our imaginations have been so stirred up over the years that we often fail to see the dramatic contrast that Luke makes clear in his version of the Christmas story. Now, at the very beginning of what you heard read earlier today, there are the familiar words of Luke chapter 2, verse 1, when it says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And then he says this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. He's grounding this story in history and telling us what's going on, at least the big picture in a human sense. Augustus was considered really nearly divine. He led the most powerful empire the world had ever seen. 
Roman temples were lavishly ornamented. Their army controlled most of the ancient world. Within a hundred years of Jesus' birth, they had conquered Jerusalem, reduced the temple and the city to rubble. Caesar's power seemed absolute. And by contrast, nothing could seem more insignificant than the birth of a baby in an out-of-the-way place to a teenage mother under dubious circumstances. Nothing was more improbable than a handful of ordinary shepherds to be the first witnesses of the birth of Jesus, the one the angel said would be their shepherd, their, their savior. Now, our imaginations have been so captured by the image that it's really hard for us to see how radically flipped this story is, how it flips the power equation of history, that instead of appearing to the powerful and the connected, the angels announced the Messiah's birth to the poor and the humble and the powerless. So the question is, really, if God of the universe chose to reveal himself to the likes of these, how much more will he not want to reveal the Savior to us? So I want you to take just a moment and imagine a thought experiment. And that is, what if we're 2,000 years after the events of this day and Jesus has not yet come? In other words, the Messiah has not come and it's maybe this week that that Messiah is destined to come. And so maybe tonight, a poor couple without health insurance are admitted to HCMC. They give birth to a baby, a baby boy. Who do you think the angel would go to to announce the birth of that Messiah? Might be a school teacher, or a late night convenience store clerk, or the twice divorced mother of two who's just struggling to make ends meet. Or maybe it's an overworked executive with a difficult boss. In other words, the angel would have come to people like you and me. And the good news that the angel brought to the shepherds that first Christmas would be the same message that he would bring to us this Christmas. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And then there would be the words of the angel choir who would sing the, these lyrics. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now the first part of that little song that the angels sang, the part that says glory to God in the highest, reminds us through, that throughout the Christmas story, God is the one who's pulling the strings. He's in control. The one who made sure that Caesar Augustus issued a decree that would a census be taken of the Roman world, a decree that would ensure that at exactly the right moment, a pregnant teenager would give birth in a town that the prophets had predicted that the Messiah would be born. And they were right. Glory to God in the highest, because there's no way that this story unfolds in the way that it does without the hand of God. And then there's the second half of the story, where it says, On earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. It tells us that Jesus came to be peace. Let me just tell you three ways that I think Jesus brings us peace. And the first is peace about the past. We all live with regrets. We all wish we could rewind the tape and do over a handful of embarrassing episodes, shameful episodes in our lives. Because we live with guilt over things we've done that even while we were doing them, we knew were wrong, but we did them anyway. All these things and more are covered by what Jesus would later do for us on the cross. And then in Jesus, we can also find uh, peace in the present. And maybe this Christmas, you're in a tough place. You're anxious about a challenge. Maybe your heart's been broken. Your finances are in disarray. Or you have an undiagnosed illness and you're worried. Maybe there's little that you can do in the short term. 
But what you need is a peace that transcends circumstances, something that allows you to keep going even while you wait for things to change. Jesus once told his disciples in John chapter 14, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. In Jesus, we can also find peace for the future. Because the peace that the angels mention is ultimately fulfilled by the way that God takes care of us eternally. The promise of Christmas is that with the arrival of Jesus begins a chapter of God's story that extends from the manger to the cross, from the cross to the empty tomb, and from the empty tomb to the day that Jesus went back to heaven. And the promise that one day Jesus will return again and when all he does, all who put their faith in him will be raised to join Jesus in his eternal kingdom. To find peace for the past and the peace in the present and peace for the future, you must put your faith in Jesus. The Jesus who was born into the world can also be born in your heart. The good news that the angel brought to the shepherds is the same good news that he brings to us this Christmas. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior is born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that you would come to us this Christmas, breaking into the, our ordinary lives with the extraordinary message of the birth of Jesus. Help us to find peace. Peace about the past, peace in the present, and peace for the future. A peace that comes by knowing that you are right now and for all eternity with us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.